Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. So it's this Friday. Yeah, we're going to rock the house. Good to see you guys. Are you there? It's good to, is it good to be seen? Yeah, some of you are looking at me like, who is this guy? <laughs> um, so one of the reasons we wanted uh, Mariam and Marzia to come back is that I believe that one of the best ways to strengthen the, the free church, the Western church, is uh, to expose us to the persecuted church. And we've tried to do that through film. We've tried to do that through people that visit here. We can't all go to Iran, right? Especially right now with the, uh, the virus. But uh, we can, through this uh, opportunity, bring people that have been in one of the darkest prisons on the planet and stood for their faith in Jesus. Uh, when challenged to deny him, and and how do we do that? And and so they're going to help us become strong Christians. And I hope you'll come out and be with us. Um, I also want to thank uh, Joachim for sharing last night. How many of you were here last night to hear Joachim from one, <laughs> two? Well, that's okay. I mean, most of us don't go to church twice on a weekend. Uh, but uh, c- congratulations for double dipping. You, uh, you got Jamocha almond fudge, and you got coffee with dark chocolate chip. Uh, two flavors. Uh, uh, from Sweden, telling us last night what God is doing in Sweden and Europe, uh, changing the landscape of the church as uh, Iraqis and Syrians are coming to faith in Jesus as they've fled from ISIS and, uh, and find themselves in new terrain and the church in Sweden had to make a decision. Do we open our doors? They don't quite look the same as we do. And uh, God has just blown the socks off of the church in Sweden as it's, it's hugely growing. Two-thirds of all those that are newcomers that are accepting Christ into their life are former Muslims coming to their faith in Christ. And, and by the, the hundreds, you know, so it's, it's, and it's not just... Sweden, it's, it's in Germany, it's in uh, uh, Finland, uh, so many different countries. So, so good to hear, right? And uh, God's doing it right here also in San Diego, in our own backyard in El Cajon. So uh, come out Friday night for that. Well, this morning, I want to re-radicalize you. And that's where we're going today. You need to buckle up. And because uh, we're, we're going to re-radicalize you. So what does that mean? Uh, some of you would say to me, uh, I'm already ra- radical. You know, what are you talking about making me re-radicalized? Then I would say to you, then you're already a candidate to be re-radicalized because none of us are uh, radical in the sense that we have achieved. We are there. We're, we're 100% following Jesus. And my last reading in the Sermon on the Mount, I was doing our church reading, and as we're reading through Matthew, I was so impressed with this uh, manifesto from Jesus, that this is Jesus' first big sermon to his followers to say, here it is, guys, are you in? Here it is, guys, are you in? This is what I'm going to do to the interior landscape of your soul and for me to respond and say, yeah, bring it on. Let's do this thing. And it doesn't matter how old you are in the faith or how uh, new you are in the faith. So can you remember the last time that something was said about Jesus that you found yourself tearing up, that you found yourself like saying, I don't know if I can do this. This is scary. Um, can I take this step? Or maybe you did take that step. And maybe you gave your heart and life to Christ. Or maybe you decided, yeah, I'm going to go to that scary place called church. Or maybe I'm going to share my faith with somebody else. That scary, radical moment. Uh, I want to build on that, and I'm not suggesting that I'm more radical than you. I'm assuming you're more radical than I. 
I'm assuming that you're, you're that person. But as we come back to Jesus, if you for the next few weeks can just put on baby skin and say, you know, I don't have it all together. Some of you are resident theologians. You've been through the Sermon on the Mount. And you're going to say, boy, I hope he gives me the slant of John Stott. Or, I hope he takes me in this direction of N.T. Wright. Or I hate N.T. Wright. I hope he takes me in the direction of Dallas Willard. Um, I would just ask you to drop a beat and take a seat. Uh, just <laughs> take off your theologian hat and, uh, or leave it on, but open up your heart as well to let God speak to all of us. So if I were to buy a Lamborghini, some of you don't even know what that is. You think it's a, a new kind of pasta. <laughs> if, 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 if I were to buy a Lamborghini, and I said to you, you know, the church has been really good to me. <laughs> I know most of us would say, I'm out of here. <laughs> but just suppose, and it's parked out there, and you come out to see my Lamborghini. What do you do? I mean, none of us have even touched one, let alone sat in it, let alone driven a Lamborghini. But let me tell you the wrong thing to do. If you come out there and see my Lamborghini and you say, yep, I got a Toyota, same thing. Yep, I got a Chevy, same thing. Two tires, same thing. That's the wrong thing to say. Chevy and Lamborghini are not the same thing. So if you read the Sermon on the Mount and you say, yep, already read that, it's the wrong thing. This is Jesus telling you what the new you can be like. So let's pray together and we'll begin. Lord, we open up our hearts and lives to read this wonderful sermon as if we've never read it before and to learn to have hungry hearts, to not be religious, but spiritually hungry to hear what you have to say to us. So God, open up our minds when things get academic. Give us minds to think and open up our hearts to freshly say yes to the present voice of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus now begins to speak to you and I, just like he did to the disciples, with authority. And I want you to hear that word, authority. Americans don't hear the word authority very well. We obey to a certain degree. But there's something inside every American that's standing up when everyone else has been told to sit down, right? I was leaving my house this morning. I'm just 100 yards from my house, and I'm, my beeper is going off because I haven't fastened my seatbelt yet. I'm trying to get my phone to 
to stop doing what it's doing and setting it on the seat. And, and I'm just discombobulated. And a sheriff comes walk, driving right by me. And I thought, authority. <laughs> and I got away with it. <laughs> Quickly buckled, phone down. I mean, I could have just gone to prison for life <laughs> for that one. So Jesus speaks to you with authority. And that's the question. Does he speak to you with 29% authority in your life, 82% or 100%? That what he says is king. He's boss. And it says in verse 1, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, I'm going to show you how this verse is all about authority. But just to set the context for you, in chapter 4, before this verse ever occurs, there's several things that have set the stage for us. Number one, John the Baptist, who preceded Jesus, has now been imprisoned. This is the starting point for Jesus' ministry. Apparently, he was waiting for John the Baptist, however he would disappear, Jesus didn't want to step in front of him. So now that he's imprisoned, he feels the freedom to go ahead and start his ministry. He goes back through Nazareth. He preaches his message to his hometown people. The hometown people say there's no way that this kid who grew up here is now the Messiah, and they try to take him to a cliff and throw him off the cliff. He escapes. He goes to a place called Cana where there's a wedding, and then he moves from headquarters of Nazareth down to Capernaum. Wouldn't it be cool to visit Capernaum and see, you know, the townhouse that Jesus lived in when he was home? He, he moved to Capernaum. It'd be like moving from Escondido to Carlsbad. About the same distance, about 12 miles. And he begins to preach, and he's preaching a message that's repeated throughout the gospel. It goes like this Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, in Mark and Luke, the phrase is different. It's kingdom of God. In Matthew, he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. And a lot of made, people have made a big stink out of that, unfortunately, as if the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are different. It's just that king, in Matthew, he's writing to a Jewish audience, and they don't readily just use the word God. They want to back off because you don't want to use the word in vain. So they would always put a word in front of that. And so... It's in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven, but it's the same thing. It's God's kingdom. You and I pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we're praying, and I hope you pray that, what we're praying is for the will of God. The way it is in heaven, undefiled, that it would be in our lives and it would be around us in that same Way And we want it now, and we know eventually it's going to come perfectly. And that's the kingdom of God. So when Jesus comes to a city and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. What is he saying? Well, let's think about that contextually and historically. At that time, if a conquering army was coming upon a city, they would send out a forerunner to come to the city. The city has walls. The city would be boarded up. And the crier, the, the person that's a forerunner, would say, our army, the kingdom of such and such, is at hand. We're right around the corner. You have a decision to make repent and we'll be nice to you or my army, my kingdom is coming. Now that sounds very severe. Like what, 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 what's the alternative? Well, Jesus said it many times. Judgment. 
Judgment is coming. I'm thinking of uh, Princess Bride right now. Uh, Anigo Montoyo. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Some of you didn't see that movie, I can tell. <laughs> Thank you for the, the little bits of laughter. I love to put secret special sauce in the sermon that only a few people get, you know. Jesus is saying, truth or consequence, fish or cut bait, this is the moment. I have now come in my presence because I'm the king of the kingdom. I'm forcing an issue on you that you haven't thought of before. Thank you for nodding your head. Otherwise, I might just keep talking about this. So do you get this? So it's incredibly intoxicatingly freedom to think, wow, the way it is in heaven is coming to me? Yeah. But it's terrifying to think, wow, if I just keep doing my own stupid thing, there could be consequences? Yeah. Because the kingdom used to be a far, far away, but now it is come near. So do you get that? That was Jesus' message. And he mixed it up in all kinds of ways. And as he preached, it tells us in chapter 4 that he also did incredible healings, which is also indicative of the fingerprints of God coming, that lives begin to change, bodies begin to heal, because God is here. The one who puts things right is present. And the passage in chapter 4 tells us that the news of Jesus began to spread like wildfire all over the place, and crowds began to pile in to this little town called Capernaum to see and hear from Jesus. So that's the context. I want you to look at the screen to see the map so we all understand where this big thing is happening, a little tiny spot in the world. So here we have uh, Palestine, Israel, Canaan, and you see down here is Judea where Jerusalem is, Across the, the Jordan River, where modern-day Jordan is, is Gilead. Up above that is a region called Deac De Decapolis. And then way, way, way up there is the region called Galilee. And Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, was considered a part of Galilee. It's where the A is on Galilee. That's where Nazareth is in a hill country west of, of the Lake of Galilee. And so if you go to the next screen, you'll see where Capernaum is. This is a blow up of the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum is this tiny fishing village that has a Roman road that's going right against it. And where that star is, is where the Sermon on the Mount was preached. So what he did was he got up, it's okay. There's grace, there's mercy, could have been you. Remember, I didn't get arrested for being unbuckled today. So, all Jesus did was walk through the tiny little town. He crossed the Roman road, which is just this little dirt road for chariots, and he starts going up the hill. And when the people see him going up the hill, they follow him. You can still do this to the day, to this day. There's a beautiful Catholic church on top of the hill, but the passage says he sat down, uh, he went up on the mountainside and sat down, and his disciples uh, came to him. So here's maybe what it might have looked like. This is actually the Sea of Galilee. Um, I wasn't there, I didn't take this picture. <laughs> These are actors. <coughs> But it could have looked something like this. Now, why all of this as a prelude to the Sermon on the Mount? Two things. He went up a mountain. The second thing, he sat down. Doesn't mean anything to you as a modern, particularly Gentile. But to the Jews who were thinking... There is someone coming like Moses. Moses promised. 
at the end of the Pentateuch that there's someone coming who will, like me, but will be greater than me. Moses went up on a mountain. Someone is coming. Moses got the law. Someone is coming to give us the truth, and they see Jesus going up on a mountain. The second thing is he sits down. Now, we sit down just because we're tired. In the Jewish culture, in Judaism, a rabbi would stand to read the word of God. If the Torah was handed to you in a synagogue, you would stand always to read the word of God, but you would always sit to teach. To sit was a position of authority in the Catholic Church today. Not everything that the Pope says you can take to the bank. But when he sits down and speaks what's called ex cathedra, Catholics believe he's speaking for God with authority. He sits down. I even wonder our expression, chairman of the board. It's not because he moves chairs chairman it's because he has the seat of authority he has the position of leadership so this you just read this and you just think oh whatever let's get to the the rest of the passage no you need to see this and you need and I need to ingest this and ask the question is he my authority am I ready Am I eager to hear what he wants to say to me? And it says in the passage, verse 1, the disciples came to him. They saw what was going on, and when they came to him, and they sit down to hear him, they're saying, bring it on, dude. Bring it on. I'm ready. I'm ready to be re-radicalized. I'm ready for you to take me where the Messiah is supposed to take me. You with me? You getting this? So I'm thinking, they may have even been thinking about Jeremiah's promise, which went like this. This is the covenant I will make with my people Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my Torah, my law, my Old Testament, I'll put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they say, will teach their neighbor saying to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. So they're thinking this could be it. It's, it's starting, it's happening right in front of us. So no doubt, they have a lot of questions as Jesus is beginning his ministry. And here's the questions I think they're asking themselves. So how does following Jesus, how is that the same as other rabbis? And how is it different? It's the same question you come. You walk into this church or you begin to open up your Bible and you say, well, how is this different than Buddha? How is this different from that Uh, gathering, how is this different from what my therapist said? You're asking these same questions. Is this the ultimate authority? The second thing they're asking is, what's our purpose? Where is this thing going to lead us? These are answers that you're going to find in the Sermon on the Mount. If I listen to Jesus, what is my ultimate purpose in life? What is the relationship between his teaching and the Torah? Christians have often asked that question. What is the true measure of spirituality? Is it how much you know? Is it how how high you lift your hands when you worship? How would we know true spirituality if we saw it? And what does life look like in this kingdom that Jesus is talking about? And is there any fine print I need to know about? Any warning that you could get the coronavirus if you follow me? Is there any kind of warning I need to know about? And all of those questions are answered as Jesus is giving them his uh, Magna Carta. So how are they listening? And how are you listening? 
because some of the, the people sitting on the, on the side of the mountain were probably like this. I can't believe what I'm hearing. This is what I've been hungering for my whole life. Is this really happening? And I'm guessing there were a few people, maybe even Pharisees and Sadducees, like this. Nothing, nothing profound here. Who can do this stuff? I mean, what's he saying? You see, it's, it's all about the hearer. Do you know the Bible never says, uh, may the preacher be a good preacher? What the Bible says is, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I know I should pray for me every Sunday morning, but I pray for you. I pray for your ears, your heart, your eagerness. Because I can, I can tell when you're sucking it right out of me, and I can tell when it's just kind of going out four feet and going, beep, <laughs> beep. So now, we come to the outline of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is... You know, this is where you got to sit up. I admit, I'm a teacher that aims about four inches above your head. And, and I don't make it easy for you. So this is going to appear to some of you like it's, this is academic. And you're going to say, who can do this? But it's to help you to understand where we're going over the next eight weeks. And I'll do it real quickly. The Beatitudes, number one. What are the Beatitudes? You know the Beatitudes. Blessed are the blessed are. We just read them. What is that all about? Next week, we'll get to it. The second week, we're going to get to, he says, you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. There's your purpose statement for life. The third week, sinking the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was this guy in the second century AD named Marcion, kind of like my name. And uh, he couldn't sink the Old Testament and the New Testament together. So he said, you know, the Old Testament has this kind of angry God that just goes around getting out of the wrong side of the bed and wants to judge everybody. And he's just this very difficult guy to live in his neighborhood. And then Jesus comes along. He's really cool and he's sweet and he tiptoes through the tulips and he's just kind and gentle. And um, Jesus came to deliver us from the Old Testament God. And do you know the early church decided that was a heresy? That it was the same God, old and new. But some of us have that heresy in us, don't we? It's okay to admit it. It's like, oh, yeah, I don't know. So we're going to talk about how do we sink, because Jesus talks about that. The fourth thing he talks about is examples. You know, the, the section there, he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. That, if you don't know what that part is, let me remind you. He says, you have heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, if you have hated a person, you've already murdered him. Now buck up for the next one, guys. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you're lusting at all, you've already committed adultery. Right? So anybody still good? <laughs> like... Are you going to say, Mark, give me a hard one. Like, these are easy, everybody, you know. You see, most of us don't know what to do with those, and so we've, we get that far in the Sermon on the Mount, we bail. We, we either decide, who can do this? We throw the Bible down, or we come up with a quirky doctrine that says, this is only made for the age that we're in heaven. And we rip that part of the Scripture out and say, it's not made for now. Thank God. What if Jesus is telling us the, the true intent of the Torah from the beginning? He was never telling us, learn all these ways to get around it like the Pharisees did and the teachers of the law. Well, you don't do this and you don't do that. And, and he, we were never meant to dance around, but we were meant to have our lives changed. And he's actually inviting us into the ultimate intent, I got to stop because I'm giving you away a, a my sermon, and that's four weeks from now. <laughs> then he tells us about 
really practical spirituality. When you give, when you pray, when you fast. He doesn't say, if you, because he says you will. You will fast as a Christian. You will pray, and you will give. It's expected, but how we do it is important, that we're not doing it for show so everybody else can know. We're not using it to advance our ego in the church, but it's between myself and an audience of one, Jesus. Then he says, don't. There's a whole series of don'ts. One is what you've already done it today. Anyone worrying about the coronavirus? Come on. Like, nobody in the church has ever worried about that. I was supposed to go to Rome this week to a conference. And I'm the one guy who said, you know what? I don't think we should be meeting over there, you know? And everyone says, come on. What are we afraid of? We love Jesus. Jesus, I'm just, hey, it has nothing to do with that. I don't want to be quarantined in Miramar for 14 days because I was in Italy, right? He's, Jesus says, don't worry. Anybody worry about the stock market? By the way, you have no more retirement, by the way. You just lost it in one week. Anybody worried? <laughs> right? So what do we do with that as humanoids? He says, I'm going to help you here because my spirituality actually is practical. I care so much about you. I want to enter into even the little worries of your life. Uh, he says, not only don't worry, he says, don't be this hoarder like a squirrel that's hoarding up all these acorns. Of <laughs> Don't, because I love you, and I care for you. I'm a part of your working life. And he says, don't judge. Now, there's some fine print in the end that says, well, how will you know if you're, if you're on the right track here? And he says, it's fruit. And that's the last section of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, fruit, right? You know, those of you raised in the church, you sang a song. You actually acted out the, the, the building, your house on the sand and not. And, and the house that's built on the sand washes away in the house that's built on the rock. And, and it's an application of fruit. You want fruit to happen in your life. So that is the Sermon on the Mount in a quick or overview. But let me tell you what the sermon is not. It is not heightened legalism. Yada, yada, yada. You've heard it said, but let me tell you. <laughs> you ain't seen that. It's not heightened legalism. It's not a means to an end. It's not like you can do all these things and then God will let you into the, the kingdom of God. And it's not dividing the immature from the mature. You guys don't know how to do it, but I've done it. I am the Sermon on the Mount guy. And it's not some standard that is put off till heaven, as some people have taught. I believe it's, he's presenting to us the re-radicalized God life. That this is what happens when you ingest Jesus. Doesn't happen overnight. We're not measuring you. We're not comparing you with somebody. It's just expect these things to begin to happen if you begin to follow me, as Jesus says. So I think a key verse to understanding the sermon, you're still there, right? I'm not boring you? Okay. I am? Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Chapter 6, verse 8. Real simple. This will help you understand the Sermon on the Mount. Do not be like them. The entire book of Matthew is couched against the backdrop of bad religion. That was such a good name for a band. <laughs> Just saying. Bad religion. There is bad religion out there. And Jesus says, don't be like them. Now, who is them? It's the all-stars. 
It's the guys that are carrying around big Bibles and, 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 and these rabbis at the time. Jesus says, I'm taking you in a direction that's going to re-radicalize you and you will not be like them. So what is like them? Well, in chapter 3, verse 7, John the Baptist already said, don't be like them. These guys that think they're getting away with murder, but they're a brood of vipers. And Jesus says in this very chapter in verse 20, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you won't be in the kingdom of heaven. Yowzers. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, be careful to not practice your spirituality, your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. Shall we pray? <laughs> you know, we pray before our meal, and, and it's a prayer of thanksgiving, but sometimes people forget, or we're at somebody else's table, and they didn't pray. I never, never say, you know, we didn't pray. It's like, oh, yes, thank you, Pharisee Mark, for reminding us that the meal is not blessed. So he says, don't do it in front of people. And he also says in chapter 16, verse 6, be careful, be on your guard now that you're growing in your spirituality to not have the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So that's the secret, I think, to understanding what it means to be re-radicalized by the Sermon on the Mount. When I was uh, in grad school, uh, trying to not only figure out God, but figure out people, I, I, I came across this writer who was a psychologist named Albert Ellis. And Albert Ellis, you know, was a humanist back in the 60s, 70s of last century. And, and he ranted and raved about religious people and, and how bad religion was for people. And rather than just throw his book at the wall, I, I thought, you know, what is he really saying here? And I began to deconstruct him. And what he was really saying is how bad rigid people are for other people the yada yada you gotta if you didn't you're, you're, all this rigidity and you know what it does to people who are trying to grow and be creative and learn and you know it's, it's like a cookie cutter coming over your dough of life and putting it on you and and throwing away the rest of you because it didn't fit into their cookie cutter and with that, I said, you know, I think Albert Ellis is right. I think rigidity can really be harmful to people. And bad religion can really be harmful. So be at ease over the next few I am not taking you there to bad. I'm taking you in the direction of freedom that we can all be cautious about. My mom, wonderful woman. I love my mom. So... I become a Christian. Uh, she loves me even though I have long hair. I'm 18 years old. And I say, you got to go to this church with me. She walks into the church. And the church is only about this big, this center section. And it's filled with what we used to call hippies. And every guy has hair past his shoulders and barefoot. And, you know, and, and just all the garb. And fortunately, people showered. Didn't smell. <laughs> and there was this preacher, Chuck Smith. The first few weeks, I took my mom and my dad uh, to church. Remember this, Dad? Yep. It would drive them nuts. <laughs> My mom would come home and say, why does that guy, I, if he wants to hair, wear his hair long, then whatever, but why does he keep going like this <laughs> throughout the service? And, and, of course, I'm thinking, 
was that an incredible sermon or what? That was amazing. But she couldn't get past the hair. And then when the barefoot people would rest their crossed legs and put the toes in the communion cup holes. I mean, she wanted to get out her scissors and cut their toes off. And I'm thinking, isn't this cool? Right off the beach, coming in and discovering Jesus, you know? And then one day, my mom came home, and she says, I'm healed. I'm healed. God healed me. And I said, what are you healed of? And she said, I can't remember the length of hair of the person who sat in front of me. I didn't notice. There's a a metaphor here. It's a metaphor of what does it mean to follow Jesus? That you don't get all cleaned up for him. You can't clean yourself enough. You're too dirty. You can't do it. This is not self-improvement to get ready for him. This is him saying in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what I'm going to do for you, what you could never do for yourself. And it's not creating a religion where we're judging, you know, Wish Mark would just shave that stupid beard, you know. (laughs) Or when are they going to do this? Or what? You know, that kind of stuff. But we're learning not to judge, but we're learning uh, to grow with what God has for us. Jesus, you remember, was judged all the time for eating with sinners. Aren't you glad he ate with sinners? Because that's you. You're wondering, where am I in the story? You're the sinner. I'm the sinner that he eats with. So I want to close with just this one word that takes us into next week. Blessed. Verse 1 takes us into the Beatitudes, and verse 2 begins with blessed. And we have this string of eight blessings that Jesus pronounces. Now, what is happening there? Because this will change how you read the Beatitudes. You're still there, right? Hang in there for nine more minutes. I need you. So, blessed, to be blessed was part of Judaism. Still is. 275 times Barak, the word to bless, is used in the Torah, the Old Testament. First time, Genesis 1. Guess who God blesses first in the whole Bible? This is going to upset you. Birds and fish. I know somebody said, I love it. That's what I love about the Bible. (laughs) He blessed, you know, the the macaws. Well, then the second is he blessed you. But there's blessing. He blesses Abraham. He teaches Abraham. Aaron, the high priest, how to pronounce a blessing. To be blessed by God was like the the magic pixie dust of God coming down on you. That the reason things go better, the reason things go right, is because you're blessed. There's something of the fingerprints of God on your life, right? Some of you know that your lives are blessed. So that's this word here. Makarioi, but the word that's usually translated back and forth from the Greek to the Hebrew is not the Barak blessed, but I am blessed. I'm already blessed. It's already happened to me. And that's the word that's used here. Some 46 times in the Old Testament, asharia is the word, and it means that you are blessed, and probably translating in the English, if you used a different word than blessed, it would be, oh, how happy is the person. Or, congratulations, it's happened to you. And that's what Jesus is saying here to these eight groups of people. He's saying, oh, how happy are you? 
because this is now what's happened to you. I think verse 12 wraps it up where Jesus says, and it's in the context of persecution, he says, rejoice and be glad. You're, you're a rejoicing people. You're a blessed people. You're a happy people. It's happened to you. Someone asked me once, why do Christians always look like they're baptized in lemon juice? And I said, what do you mean? And they just, he said, well, they just go around looking at culture and life and judging it and saying what's wrong. And I said, well, that's not the Christians I know. We're not baptized in lemon juice, are we? We're baptized in joy. We're blessed. And we celebrate that blessing. It's the God life that Jesus takes us into. So let me just read before we close. Let me read to you the way I think the Beatitudes that we'll study next week should be read. Congratulations to the broken. Really? Congratulations to those who are crying over their loss. Congratulations to the lowly. Congratulations to the dissatisfied when it comes to the injustices of this world. Congratulations to the merciful. Congratulations to the honest at heart. Congratulations to those that reach out to heal relationships. And congratulations when you're misunderstood and persecuted. Those are not the things we expect, right? It's kind of taking life and turning it on its head. But here's the key. Why congratulate? Why are we so happy to be broken? Here it is. Ready? Because we're ready for the Messiah. We're ready to be radicalized. We're ready to hear what he has to say. The person that's got it all together. Sorry, buddy. You're not ready. The person that's never lost anything. I'm amazing. Are you amazing? We're all amazing. Sorry. The person that doesn't understand the power of mercy and forgiveness. Sorry. But the person who's been prepped. How have you got there? Congratulations. You can find it in Isaiah 61. Very similar. Where This is the first sermon that Jesus taught in uh, Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, that's the kingdom of God, to comfort those who mourn, and to bestow a crown of beauty instead of ashes, oil of joy instead of mourning. It's the same proclamation couched in a different way. So next week, we'll dig in to the thoroughness of the, the Beatitudes. So to come up for air and bring this to a close, are you ready? Probably not. There's, well, how are you going to get ready? You can't just go, well, I'm, gonna, I'm really trying. You, you can't ready yourself. But we can at least admit, I don't have it all together. And yeah, there are some broken parts of my life. And I do want to be re-radicalized by Jesus. So he comes to us just as he came to Peter and Peter got out of the boat and said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Just as he came to Mary Magdalene and drove out those demons from her life. Just as he came to Nicodemus and Nicodemus came to him by night. But the other person that came to him was the rich young ruler. He was filled with himself, wasn't ready arms crossed, didn't want what Jesus had. So this is a time to say, yeah, Lord, re-radicalize me. I want to go on this journey.
in the Sermon on the Mount. So yesterday, Jan and I were in uh, Chicago. I love the people in Chicago. I didn't know I did. But uh, we woke up in the morning. We flew out Friday. And, uh, and I woke up yesterday morning, looked at my phone to see what time it was, then looked at the AccuWeather to see what the temperature was and why the heater in the motel kept coming on. And it said 12 degrees. So we Uber over to this church where we're speaking, and, um, and then this guy is uh, from Vietnam. No, no, he was from India. It's South India, and he's a Christian. He's got a cross. And I'm talking to ask him about the crosses. And I said, how's this weather working out for you? A little bit different than South India, isn't it? <laughs> we walk into the church, and everyone said, this is a great day. This is amazing. Look at the sun is out. The high is going to be 30 today. This is, and I said, you know what? You should come to San Diego. You know, we stand in line at Starbucks and say, well, I don't know. I thought it was going to be a little warmer today. This just feels like, you know, I can't tell if it's 69 or 71. What do you think? And, and, uh, <laughs> but there was a guy at the conference. We're teaching on parenting. And at one point, I tell my story of being a cats in the cradle kid. We'll get together then. Going to have a good time then. And this guy, he's wearing a hoodie, so I already like him. And he's already, I've already met him, and he's a mechanic. And he begins to cry. And he comes up to me, and he says, you know what? Your story is my story. And I don't know how to raise my kids. Now I ask you, how much do you think he got out of that seminar yesterday? Like buckets and buckets and buckets. And there was other people sitting there saying, yeah, I really like that point that you said about this. And we're going to add that one little thing that you said, you know, but... It was that guy that was broken, didn't have it all together. Folks, the broken parts of your life, the broken parts. I just thought of him. My sons sing this song. Uh, that's where the, the light shines through. That's where God gets through. So Jesus is taking on this re-radicalization and we're going to let him do all that he wants to do, right? We're going to ride in the Lamborghini. And we're not going to compare it to our Chevy. It's going to be a whole new thing, right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you want to do what you want to do. And we just, we let go and let you do what you want to do in our lives. And God, because we do mourn, because we are broken because we need mercy, we come to you today inviting you to re-radicalize us, to make us crazy, wonderful, happy followers of Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.